Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. My guest tonight is award-nominated poet, writer, editor, writing coach, Megan Wildhood. Megan is also a short story and flash fiction writer. And tonight she'll share stories from her forthcoming collection. Megan, <laughs> you're making a grand return to the program. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you again. <laughs> no, I'm excited, too. I'm so happy. <laughs> well, let's begin this short story journey. Are you ready? Oh, I'm so ready. Yes. <laughs> All right, then. I'd just like to ask you a couple of questions before we begin, before we start reading. You're a famed poet. You're a pushcart <laughs> nominee. <laughs> What inspired you to write short stories? Yes, um, I actually was inspired by something that happened to me uh, in in real life, but I wasn't mm-hmm. ready to talk about it. So I wrote it up as I, I fictionalized it. I kind of got some distance from it and I wrote it up just to sort of process it uh, from a distance. And I realized what I mm-hmm. had was a short story. Um, I had not planned on writing fiction. I had not planned on writing short stories. I was, quote, just a poet. And then mm-hmm. um, I wrote this story, and I had someone who knew me read it, and they yeah. said it read like a short story. They didn't know that it was based on a true story. I mean, I would say most fiction mm-hmm. is based on true story, but, um, (laughs) and then, uh, and they encouraged me to start submitting it. So ever since that happened, um, I've actually just Mm -hmm. gotten, I've taken inspiration from, from real life to write short stories. Mm -hmm. Um, but Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that fiction does is that it gives, um, if you're going to write from real life is distance, uh, in a way that can help process events and mm-hmm. uh, as my and it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be something that really happened as my dad says I don't know if this story really happened but I know that it's true um, mm-hmm. so I think uh, when I think about and I, now I love to write uh, fiction I love to write short mm-hmm. stories um, when, it, when something comes to me and it doesn't fit in a poem then I put it in a short story. Okay. But Megan, poetry. Yes. <laughs> what are you going to do about poetry? <laughs> are you going to walk away from it? Are you going to walk oh, away from no, poetry, no. Megan? <laughs> I No, no. I would never walk away from my first love. Um, I okay. am working on, I have a, a completed uh, full-length collection, uh, so it would be my second one. And then I'm working on a mm-hmm. third full-length collection. 
um, kind of going through edits with my writer's group. So the collection that I finished, that one I finished in a month, um, and I'm uh, mm-hmm. looking for a publisher for that. And then the one that is going to be my third full-length collection, those uh, those poems have been written over a span of, a, of 15 years, kind of like my first one that came out in May. Yes. Um, and so mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out how they fit together. So that one's mm-hmm. taking me a little bit longer. But, yeah, I know uh, I will. The good thing about fiction and poetry is that they're so different that if I get stuck in fiction, like I'm working on a couple mm-hmm. of novel manuscripts as well. And so if I get stuck there, like I've written myself into a plot um, corner, I can switch mm-hmm. to the, one of my poetry projects and it's like a completely different part of the brain. And so it lets mm-hmm. the fiction part rest and then I can yes. kind of do the, the poetry thing. And uh, so there's no lull in writing. Like I'm always doing some kind of writing. I think this is All probably right. why I've never experienced right. writing. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you, flash fiction, what exactly is that? I know short stories but flash fiction? Tell me about it. Yes. I had to learn what flash fiction was, too. Um, it's mm-hmm. There are different definitions of it. Uh, certain journals have different – it's based on the word limit. So it's a short story, but it's either – some journals say up to 500 words. Some say up to 1,000 words. But it's basically mm-hmm. like just a, a, a snapshot of a, of mm-hmm. a story of a character's life that – um, I mean, my definition would be under a thousand words. Some, okay. there's like more and more journals are saying, you know, 500 words, 750 words, which really is, I mean, if it's double space, that's two Microsoft Word pages. So it's really, really short. Um, but, you know, mm-hmm. to match the attention span of this <laughs> generation, I guess. <laughs> um, I would say it's harder to write. They're harder to write than, than longer pieces, though. Okay. You know, my last question before I turn the program over to you, as a writer of short stories, who inspires you? Oh, wow. Yeah. I, so um, I would say for, the, for writers, um, one of my inspirations is um, Jeffrey Eugenides. He writes, uh, he writes also, he also writes novels. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, Jonathan Franson, um, and then also, uh, I mean, Amy Tan, she's mostly a novelist, but yes. the way that she writes her novels, sometimes the chapters kind of read like short stories. And um, they kind of, she has like this, it's, I can't figure out how she does it. It's really amazing um, how she strings together mm-hmm. a bunch of what could be short stories into this one story. It's not a collection of short stories. It's actually a novel. But I actually, I really like these, the way that she kind of pieces those together. Um, and I think just, I, I think more than um, writers, it's just kind of things that in life that I want to explore yes. and I want other mm-hmm. people to explore, but I don't want them to get mm-hmm. hung up on details of, well, did this thing happen exactly this way? And what were the actual details of it? And if they know it's fiction, then they can kind of suspend mm-hmm. that. Um, that need for it to know if this is, is this thing fact? Did these things happen in this way? Um, so it's like news events. Like one of the stories that I'll read was inspired by uh, an event that happened. And I kind of imagined 
like what was going on behind the scenes of this. Like we don't have access to all the information on, you know, news stories, but what might've been going on? It was, it was a trial. So I was like, what might the jury have Mm -hmm. been thinking? So it's a way I'm inspired by ways we can imagine uh, things behind the scenes that we just won't have access to, because I think that helps us not get so polarized and so rigid and structured. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's more like, wow, that thing was really interesting. Um, there's no way I can have access to all this information about what, quote, really happens. So if we invite mm-hmm. this fiction journey, then we, can, we don't have to worry about, oh, are these details right? Because we know it's fiction. Then I think I should ask before we start, are there recurring themes or motifs that you explore in your work? Oh, yes, that's a great question. Um, there are. I, I would say they chose me. I haven't um, been intentional about that. But as I've been reading over my work, I, it's like, yeah, these things do keep coming up. Um, one of them would be attachment and how we get attached to what we're attached to, um, whether that's people, places, uh, stories, things going our way. Like, how do we get our paradigms? And how do we get attached to things, whether they serve us or not? Um, and then I would say another one is probably uh, grief and mortality. Um, we all have yes. to face that. And how we can do that in a way that makes the life that we do have meaningful, um, even if it's mm-hmm. not always joyful or pleasant. Um, and how we can go through grief. I mean, I don't know that depending on what we're grieving. I don't know that we ever fully get through it, but how we can incorporate that yes. in life um, and go mm-hmm. forward after the loss anyway. Um, I think our culture is not great with dealing with grief and uh, yes. we don't leave a lot of time for it. Um, we kind of think there should be a timeline. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of want to invite people into um, the reality that, it, you know, it's, it's actually okay if you don't really ever get over it. My grandfather died in 2008, and every time mm-hmm. I smell a lilac bush, which they had, my grandparents had lilac bushes outside their house. Um, mm-hmm. So, which we, and I mean, I grew up with um, these wonderful people. So every time I smell a lilac, still, I mean, 2008 was a long time ago, and um, every time I smell a lilac, I, um, I cry and miss my grandfather. So. Mm-hmm. And it's just part of life now. Partly it's like, that's what's, that's what's so powerful about love is that I don't have to let go and I don't have to get over it. And that I can have this wonderful reminder of my goofy, wonderful grandfather that I had for 22 years. Um, And it's okay that it's sad that he's not here anymore. Yes. Well, We've come to the time. So everyone, let's listen to a short story written by Megan Wildhood. All right. This short story is called, But You Should Never End a Sentence with a Bird. When Bird was afraid, he hugged his arms against his ribs and held his elbows so tight while he rocked 
slightly that he would sometimes have fingerprint bruises near his funny bones. He'd done this since he was a kid. It looked like he was feeling nauseous when he did it, and the bigger kids would point that out. Bigger, as in would take two of bird to make one of them. This was pointed out too. By the end of third grade, light as a feather became, why don't you flap those arms and fly away to save yourself instead of hugging your carcass, lighty. It was just all too convenient that his actual name was Bert. Eleven other people around this table have been waiting to go home for over three hours now. This had been going on every day for a week. If he would only just agree with them, then justice could be rendered and there would be an end to the long, circular deliberations. Just think of how you'd feel, they'd each taken their turns saying, if you lost your six-year-old to a crazy gunman, or your spouse, your teammate, your teacher. There were 14 options for empathizing. Surely one of the relations would catch his breath. I would be spacey with rage and grief, Bird had said, and I wouldn't confuse those feelings of vengeance with justice. You do realize that justice is a relative term, yes? The youngest juror said, picking at the nail polish on her thumb. Relative to what? One of the two undecided jurors looked at her and the focus shifted away from Bird again. In the end, Bird was the reason the murderer was spared the death penalty and the jurors could all get back to their lives. On their way out, several jurors who were sure from the beginning that this guy needs to fry spat at him. You're probably one of those people who couldn't shoot a man threatening to kill his own wife. Mercy is cowardice. It was none of those things. Bert had never married. He had been hugging his ribs because he was afraid of the jurors, not justice. And his dad had died the victim of a crime, not the perpetrator, when Bird was nine. Bird said nothing. He walked to his old brown Crown Victoria, clutching his elbows when he heard footsteps behind him. He stopped, and the steps behind him did too. He did not turn around as he hunted for his keys. When he started walking again, the footsteps started too. When he slowed, they slowed. He smashed his key into the door's lock and dove into the car once he got his door open. It wasn't until he had his buckled, doors locked, and foot on the path that he looked up. He didn't see anyone around. Several of the jurors had given interviews to the press. They are outraged at this miscarriage of justice. In between these red-faced exclamations and bitter eulogies to the justice system are cuts of victim statements that were filmed live from the courtroom after it was clear that the shooter's life would be saved. How do you feel about being given something you took away from so many mom of the youngest of his victims asked. She didn't bother moving her hair out of her face, letting her tears slide down its greasy strings and sputter electric microphone on the podium a few feet in front of the shooter. Bird couldn't keep from jumping every time. 
The jurors in his row glared at him each time he shook their bench in the juror's box. The juror on either side of Bird was each wearing sports jersey t-shirts with traffic cone orange stripes down the sleeves. The orange was the same color as the vest the guards flanking the shooter were wearing. Bird had not remembered the reading of the sentence until he saw it replayed on the news. The court has found Mr. Jones guilty of all 125 counts against him. Because the jury could not come to a unanimous decision, which as we all know is required to render capital punishment, he will receive two life sentences without the possibility of parole. Bird clicked off the TV and tossed the remote onto the other cushion, stood, stretched, and went for a walk. It had been nearly a week since the sentencing, and he had only wavered in his conviction once. It was not because of the three veiled death threats that he had received, which he had tried to report to the police, but didn't have enough information for them to move forward. It was the victim statement of a son who had lost his father in Mr. Jones's rampage that made Bird pause briefly. But he knew, because he had learned from his father, the difference between retribution and justice. And so would not have changed his mind, even if he could have at that point. Whatever ends the cycle of violence, that's justice, he heard his dad say and whispered along. It didn't look like it would ever overtake the spouse of sun. Night waddled so slowly into the sky. Bird squinted into the doomed light. He didn't hear the footsteps this time. The last thing he saw was soft, ferric, black. He felt only the first hit, a cold root diving down his spine that beat the beauty right out of him. Megan, (laughs) what a powerful story. Thank you. Extremely well-crafted, powerful, powerful piece. Thank you. Can you share any insights into your creative process when crafting a short story? I'd like to know, do you outline extensively? I'm thinking maybe more organic storytelling, but tell us, please. Yes. Uh, Usually um, the short stories that I write come from uh, what I call a spark. So it's either I have a character or Mm -hmm. an incident. And I craft around that spark. So in this case, This story was actually based on um, a a true story, the story of the the Dark Knight shooter in Aurora, Colorado in July of 2011. And I'm I'm from Colorado, um, so that um, really really caught my attention. And I remember watching some part of the trial of James Holmes and going – what would it be like to have been on that jury? And that was the spark for this, um, this particular story, but you should never end a sentence with a bird. 
And right. so there, it was mostly what would it be like to be on that jury? And then what would it be like to be on that jury if you just do not believe in the death penalty at all, no matter what? And okay. what would happen? Um, so then the theme of what actually is justice emerged. But it always starts with mm-hmm. a concrete person in mind. I mean, like a character, not necessarily a, a real person. Or uh, an incident. Or like a, a dilemma of some kind. And then I kind of, I call it flowering out from there. So it's, if, there, if I actually were to write this out, it would look like there's an incident in the middle. And then there's all these mm-hmm. things that sprout out from it, like all these petals that come out. Um, and then how do I work that all in to one kind of flower and ground it and root it? So it's kind of flailing around looking for what's, what's the stem, what's the root, how do I bring all these petals together? So it is pretty organic um, because it's, it doesn't quite look the same every time, except for it always starts with, uh, a, a, one of those things I call a spark. Um, and usually the idea kind of flows from there after I wrestle with it a little bit. Tell us more about approaching, developing the development mm-hmm. of characters, because there were a number of compelling characters in that, in that short story, one in particular. Yes. So how did you, like you said again, how did you go about approaching him, knowing what you know about the world. I, you oh, yeah. talked about it, but I want you to flesh it out just a little bit more. Oh, sure. Yeah. So developing character uh, usually for me is about what is a thing that I want to explore about what I know about human nature. Um, mm. And then I kind of epitomize that in a character. So in this case of bird, it's what does it mean to, to live by your conviction, even if everybody is against you. And even if it's very inconvenient to do so. So it's sort of a, I mean, I don't like make everything very, very black and white, but there is that, uh, what would it, what, what does it look like to, be different? What does it look like to stand up when you're the only one standing up? What does it look like to believe something that nobody around you believes? Um, do, do you crumble? Do you get stronger? Not all of my characters stand strong, even to the point of death. Some of them do crumble. And what are the, mm-hmm. what are the flaws or weaknesses or even strengths that make a character crumble versus stand strong? So it's always about exploring, and a lot of it is my experience of, of human of human nature. Yes. Like I've been in dilemmas, dilemmas yes. where I'm the only one who believes the thing in the room that I'm in. Um, mm. And when do, when would I choose to stay silent? When would I choose to speak up? Uh, when would I choose to, to really fight for what I believe? When would I choose to kind of hang back and kind of be invisible, go along, um, and kind of what makes those decisions happen? So it's uh, and it's again, I, I don't what I don't want to do in fiction is like give people prescription of here's what you okay. should do if you're in this position. Um, like you should mm-hmm. if you're a bird, you should always stand by your conviction. Um, 
a lot of times my writers, my writers group and other people have said, um, you know, we, you, you don't ever end stories with a period. They're always kind of with a question mark. And that's, un, that's intentional um, because I don't think, I think human nature is complicated. I think we each are full of major contradictions and we're like Rubik's cubes that are, we're mysteries to ourselves. And I think mm-hmm. trying to give people perspective, like I want people to pay attention to these, these very serious issues, you know, like capital punishment, like uh, various other things that uh, are, that I explore in the different stories. But I don't, I don't have answers for myself always. So I don't want to give answers to other people. So yeah. I intend to be nuanced even as I make stark characters. And that's, that's really challenging, but I really I like that. I like doing that. All right, then. Please share another story. Okay, this one is uh, an excerpt from my, uh, one of my novel manuscripts. It's a standalone piece, too. Um, this is called A Story of Circle and Breath. A child's mother died. She was nine until she heard the news. Then she forgot some years and that she even had a younger sister. She became little again, the only motherless child. Just before she became the only motherless child, she watched the mother lay in bed thinking it was a normal day. The mother had laid in bed a lot, especially lately. The mother's eyes and mouth were wide, like she'd wanted to see an angel for a long time, and finally one had appeared. The child grabbed the mother's hand. I want it to be my turn to tell the bedtime story. The mother attempted to squeeze the child's hand. Okay, said the child after a long silence. There was once a lot of time. There was so much time that it was hard to move through all of it. But people were never late because there was so much time everywhere. It was slippery, but also wrinkly. So you had to learn how to slide around on it. Everybody fell down a lot, but it was soft, so it didn't hurt. Mostly, it was just fun to skate around on, and if you fell down, you didn't have to get up right away because time would fold in over you for a little while, like it was protecting you. People keep trying to move really fast, like they always have for a while, but then they got tired. They sat down and looked up at the sky more. They saw flowers they did not think were there before and started to remember them. There is so much time to get through that they started to think there always will be time. So they stopped going places. But then someone figured out how to trap time in big black trash bags. This person was also really big, but she was also invisible. She's also really strong, so she could carry lots of time all at once, and nobody knew where she went with it. Some people started to have less time than other people. Nobody could figure out why. The people who had less time had to start moving faster. 
And they had to start choosing whether they would help someone who fell down or if they would keep going just so they wouldn't be late. People started to forget how to help each other because the big, strong, invisible girl was getting away with taking so much time. But the girl was not keeping the time for herself like everyone thought she was. She was sneaking into hospitals and pouring it all over the sickest kids she could find. The doctors did not understand how so many kids could be magically better. And some of them started to worry that they wouldn't have jobs if this kept happening. They talked about how they could stop this from happening, but they didn't know why their patients were getting better. So their patients kept getting better. One man who could see everything finally saw the girl. He was a very sad man. And a lot of people thought he was sad because he could see everything, but it was really the other way around. He went to one of the places that was slower and harder to move through and waited for the girl to come for a lot of time. When she finally came, he said hello to her, which scared her since she wasn't used to anyone ever seeing her. How much time is there left? He asked. I don't know exactly, the little girl said, but it's harder and harder to find. The man stepped closer to the girl and asked, enough for the rest of the kids in the hospitals? The girl started to look as sad as the man did and shook her head. The man held out his arms to her. Then take the rest of mine. The girl looked up at the man and then towards the hospitals and then back at the man. She didn't know what to do. Mommy, what should she do? Again, I don't know what to say. (laughs) (laughs) Because to me, even though as I listened, the emotional it was emotional in my mind beneath the surface. Mm -hmm. Nobody cried. (laughs) Nobody cried. Nobody's in the corner, none of those things. But the emotion was still in the story. Correct me if I'm wrong. Correct me. No, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So do you intentionally, I can't get it out. Do you intentionally want readers to empathize with or relate to the character's emotions? Or did you have a different purpose in mind? I related I guess, again, beneath the surface to the emotion, should I have? Maybe you had something else you wanted me to do as I was listening. <laughs> well, that's the interesting thing that actually one of the reasons I love um, uh, writing in general. Fiction, I think, is very good mm-hmm. for this. Um, one, of the, one of the things people say about fiction is that it is the best way to teach empathy. Um, oh, wow. And wow. I, I, really, I really agree with that. Um, so... Mm-hmm. That that was one of my intentions uh, was to not really teach empathy. I actually think it's really more to just activate the empathy that I believe um, humans have already. And 
Mm-hmm. I think too, one of the, the one of my favorite things about fiction is that I think the meaning not to be super postmodern here, but I think the meaning is a bit co created between the writer and the reader. Um, yes. So there 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 of course I have intentions for, for what I want to get across. Um, and then there's the reader who has totally different experiences in life than I do and who has a different lens and different programming and they are going to bring like readers don't approach a blank page. They don't come as a blank page. They come with things that, that they're not even really aware that they have. And so I yes. love having um, this opportunity to kind of present this image, this word picture, this story, and then invite the reader into what that brings up for them. Um, it's not that I believe that a story can mean anything, um, mm-hmm. but to be a little bit Flannery O'Connor, and she and she's someone I should have named as, as an inspiration. Uh, somebody once asked Flannery O'Connor what her story, um, A Good Man is Hard to Find, means, and she said, mm-hmm. did you read the story? And the person said yes, and she goes, well, that's what it means. Um, and, and so I think that's... So that doesn't answer the question, and it does. Um, and so I, I don't well, intend to be enigmatic <laughs> on purpose, but I think that it's also mm-hmm. I have I have my intentions, but I also present the story, and then you know back off and let the reader come to the story. All right then, stop right there. Let me ask this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How do you decide on the appropriate ending? for a short story and how significant is it to you? The ending. Oh, wow. Yes. Uh, the ending is everything. Uh, it's more important than the beginning because it, to me, how I decide what, what an ending is, is, mm-hmm. is, is this the, is this actually another beginning? Um, I don't actually want it to be an ending because I don't want there to be this, like, here's a happy little bow around this thing I just can't use. Right. Um, I want it to end with, this one literally ended with a question, but I kind of want, my goal in my short stories is to to not end them. <laughs> is to have okay. the, here's the picture, here's the, the, the scenario, and, you know, mm-hmm. now, reader, now it's your turn. Um, yes, you said that earlier. I remember you making yeah. that statement earlier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how I decide is, oh, it's it's pretty. This is actually pretty different than a novel because novels do have to, I think, come to some sort of resolution. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think short stories do, and so okay, a lot of the successful, like Flannery O'Connor's short stories, don't resolve for me like they don't there's no like oh yeah this is like I'm still thinking about I read A Good Man is Hard to Find 15 years ago I'm still thinking about it um and I think that the way I decide is where the where the story ends is where there could be multiple other beginnings you know tonight I'm operating outside my comfort zone but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, good, I like good. it. 
Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, yes. we're discussing yes. things that I would not discuss on a daily basis, you know. But <laughs> well, I love that. <laughs> well, then, knowing what you know about writing short stories, my friend, elements are necessary or essential for creating a compelling, memorable short story. What needs to go into it? Oh, yes. Great question. Um, the, the first thing uh, I think, and I, I'm sure there are writers who will disagree, um, probably because they, they have different goals for their short stories than I do. But for me, I think you have to have a compelling character that the readers care about. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean that they have to like the character. Um, okay. Likeability is, is a very tense, hotly debated subject in writing. Um, mm-hmm. And I think female characters are more subject to the likability test than male characters are for a variety of reasons. But what I, what I try to do is write characters that readers care about. They want to know what happens to the character. Maybe they want the character to fail. Maybe they want the character to succeed. But they have to, in, in, they have to attach to the character enough to be invested in the character's future well beyond the short Um, so there's that and there has to also Mm -hmm. be an incident Um, what what novelists call the inciting incident uh, which is it forces it's an incident or occurrence that forces the character to take some sort of action from which they cannot backpedal so they have to go forward in one way or another. And I think short stories are basically inciting incidents. Um, they are a snapshot into a character's life. And the plot of a short story should serve the purpose of illuminating the character's growth and decision-making. Okay. What I think is interesting nice. about the world is people. Not what happens, mm-hmm. it's what people do with what happens. That's what I think is interesting about the world. And so, because, you know, we, we are not in control of most of what happens in our lives or the world at all. Um, and I'm super compelled by why people make different decisions than other people and how do they come to those decisions and all of that. So I think that's what I explore in my short story. All right. Please share another. Let's see. This one is based um, also on a true incident uh, as well. This is called, This is Your Voice, Okay? When you say, I say, huh? 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 I don't know why it was 10 years before I had enough of looking at my brain. Baby brain, I demanded. Long past the stage, I was also asserting that I was not a baby and made my mom keep my scans on her phone until I was old enough to get my own phones and scans, as it would turn out. But this F-P-H-T-H sound business probably wasn't it. My mom loves me 
in a high-pitched way. So although her heart could barely walk those six months we lived in the hospital for the last three rounds of my treatment, she let me look inside my head every day, starting about then. My tumor, which also looked like a mini brain, sat on my cerebellum, and it could have gone either way, paralyzed me from the waist down, or stop my breathing in my sleep when no one was around to hear me not screaming. The chemo, to kill it, took the top off my hearing before I learned to talk. So my mom had to tell me later about all there were these three different sounds, all these different sounds that I was missing. When I read out loud, my face kind of does the F now, but you'd have to tell me if there's enough of a difference between F, P-H, T-H, for you. I'm not as confident as all, as all that, but I can sometimes coach myself by replaying my mom's encouragement when I was fumbling, learning how to talk. This is your voice, okay, dear? This is just your voice. I've got a scar on my neck that makes me look like the first person they tried to upload to immortality. You'll always be able to see it, because my hair isn't going to grow back fully. When I got to middle school, the other kids asked if I was dressed up as a human who could unzip this suit I'm wearing and peel it off to reveal what I really am, an alien. I don't like to do this thing everyone around me does, which is to make up reasons for why terrible things happen and call them lessons. I don't think there are reasons. I'm not okay with doing that, but I'm more okay with it than when people jam things like childhood cancer for one sibling and not the others into life lessons. My cancer was among, the, was among the five freaking percent. What? That's just my voice, okay? That is a genetic, that is genetic in a 50-50 kind of way. Yet I have two live siblings who both still own their bodies free and clear and are young enough that they like to look at my brains too and to think shaping their hands into guns and shouting pew, pew, pew at the scans is helpful. They're too young to understand time, so they think they're saving me. I think they saved my parents. Also, there's one on the way, so there are a million things to do, and they're the same things as yesterday and the day before. We have to keep doing the same things over and over again because death? Inflicting consciousness on another human being is not a choice I would have made, and I'm actually not sure when it would have happened 13 months ago from the looks of my mom, but theoretically, I mean. Dad's been out for the season, a much longer one than the past 11 ones that I remember. We got so much rain, like unarguable evidence of climate chaos rain, and a whole lot of the older saguaros burst. Now, that's something it turns out you and even I can hear. It's quieter, naturally, I think. With a pitch between mom's first child love and helium escaping a balloon slowly, which is why I didn't know that exploding cactus is what I was hearing out my window all those spring to summer nights. I didn't think to ask, but I don't think mom knew either. And dad wouldn't have known because he can't hear stuff like that anymore. Mom estimates that it took three seasons of cactus duty. You have to remove the dead or two big ones, preferably before they blow, with a jackhammer. For him to figure out, he needed ear protection, which was, of course, too late. How did you know there was a problem in the first place? I whispered our goodnights like I have every night 
since your treatment started. And he didn't. She looked at me and then said, he wasn't asleep and he wasn't ignoring me before I could ask. When did you get my dogs? I asked instead. Two Portuguese water dogs. So dog hair is a condiment in our house. Mimi and Jasper seem like names I would have given dogs, but no one gets two huge hairy dogs after they already have one kid, let alone four. So it seems like they might have been there before me. I sometimes dream that they will be after. Kick, the third Portie they rescued, died after only a few years of us having him, just like I have a 75% chance of doing. Remission doesn't erase those odds. Nothing does. So why do we get all weird about life? Other sixth graders don't get that, and not even I, who didn't choose to exist and probably wouldn't have, want to die alone. I don't know if it was because of those odds or because my grandma thought my hearing loss meant I couldn't hear anything, which might be because she can't really hear anything. But she gave me these shoes with pictures of the silhouettes of the alders in her backyard, and I'm pretty crazy about climbing printed, but about climbing printed on them because she thinks I need visual I love yous. Or she thinks this is what high schoolers of the future will wear, and she thinks there is such a thing as good omens. The night she gave them to me, I woke up cold and drenched from a dream. There are tumors strapped all over me inside, and the chemo this time is like walking through an oven for your veins and makes me translucent. So I look like a road map. I don't know where I would lead, though. I'm not okay with meaninglessness, but it makes the most sense at this point. I shout thank you into her right ear, which still, I'm told, registers some sound, and she laughs two laughters before waving her hand at the slanty lines of sun on her blue shag rug. On her wall is a framed poster with her favorite quote from her favorite movie. Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. So life is bad for you and only given on special occasions? How you feeling there, Fuzz? Fuzz because of how I talk, not the long-standing state of my scalp. But her love is so powerful that I feel even that as love. Tiny. It just comes out. A synonym for small that doesn't have an S or a TH or a P or an F because my brain has gotten good at helping me avoid sending sounding mush in the face. I may not be able to hear those stupid sounds, but I know what they feel like in my mouth. Stay that way for as long as you need to. She nods resolutely and shakes my hair behind my ear. Except that voice. Her rocker creaks like a captain. Nothing going to say small about that, okay? I salute her. The way she talks about the saguaros, no wonder that's where my dad is every summer. Also, when they burst, they sound like joint cracking, but with a little more music or tone or something. It's still one of those that you probably wouldn't say you've heard if someone had asked you, even if you had heard it, like a baby mountain goat, squeak boy, or how a towel snaps when your mom is having an impromptu quiet time in the bathroom and you walk in. More like a camera shutter than you would ever guess. But not like a stillborn baby, which is the same as a not stillborn baby, because not all babies cry when they're born. The doctors say 
and say and say. Sometimes they say. It just takes a while to know you're here, okay? I'd like to stick with the emotion, <laughs> the emotional part of the story. Yes, yes. <laughs> that, would, exactly. that would knock me out too. <laughs> now, <clears throat> excuse me. Are there specific emotions or aspects of emotional storytelling that you find particularly compelling or challenging to work with? Oh, <laughs> yes. Um, I would say the, the one of the main ones that I find both compelling and challenging uh, and compelling because it's challenging is grief. Mm-hmm. Um, I have historically been kind of afraid of sadness and have not really wanted to experience that myself. So mm-hmm. I have processed it through stories, which have that felt safer to me. Um, but I also, like this particular, the story that I just read uh, was based on, on a true story. And I kind of wrote it uh, for a friend who mm-hmm. um, actually has had two children with um, cancer, brain tumors, before they were two years old. And what I wanted to give her in this story, this is your voice, okay, was um, I I wrote this story actually before her second child was born, but I wanted to give her the gift of of empathy that Mm. while I, I cannot possibly be in her position, I don't have children, um, but I wanted her to know that she's not alone in the fact that her world has just totally stopped and there's this like really traumatic thing she has to go through um, twice with both of her children and that mm-hmm. I also uh, am willing to stop time and sit in the terror and the grief and the just the what in the world is childhood cancer? Like, what even is happening in my life um, with her? Which was pretty difficult for me because I tend to just avoid sadness. But I will say the other emotion that's challenging for me to write is joy. And that's what I'm kind of focused more on now is how do I write genuine sincere joy that doesn't come across as precious or sanctimonious or sentimental or preachy or Pollyanna. All right. Wow. Megan, we're going to take a short break, just a couple of minutes, because I want you to rest your voice just for a couple of minutes. All right? Okay. Okay. important to me. Everyone, we'll be right back.
are back. <laughs> that was a very short break, but just an opportunity for Megan to rest her voice. Are you with me, Megan? I am. Thank you. <laughs> we do it all on this show. We, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we do it all. We do it all. <laughs> yes. I love it. We do it all. <laughs> Uh, it's like favorite. a convenience store. <laughs> you can hear instrumental music, short yes. stories, <laughs> poetry. All of it. Oh, I love it. Okay. That's my favorite. <laughs> Let me calm down. Please share another story. All right. This one is called Server Not Found. Everything takes longer than you think, except life. My daughter and I have matching crow's feet after only 36 years. We both have mysterious knuckle calluses that Western medicine chalks up to aging. We started getting stiff and sore from sleep at 42. We both thought that was too soon. I thought I passed down a strong memory from a long line of Edidic ones, but I started to notice about five years ago now, when Arrow was not yet 70, that I had not. We both thought it was too soon until, in no time at all, she had forgotten the concept of time. Uh, if you'll please excuse me, Arrow needs her medicines. The way the spring morning sun glints on the power lines turns them into spider threads, webbing the houses of our neighborhood together. It's new to me, how none of the houses match. Although I was a child of the revolution and should fancy that sort of thing, I eventually settled, as most white women did upon marriage, into well-manicured suburbia. But I decided it would be more prudent for things to be new to me than to Arrow. So... I moved into that powder blue rambler she and Bob picked out after over a year of excruciating searching and offering and bidding and had shared with him and four boys. We'd both lost husbands, mine too soon. Hers, not so much, despite the fiery automobile crash that took him and all four of their sons on her 49th birthday, as she had recently been repeating. The power lines glinted the entire morning of our first power outage, six months after I moved in with her. Arrow began pacing the house when her computer wouldn't start up, hands interlocked and shaking, whispering, I hope they find that poor lost server soon. Her mother must be worried sick in between attempts to restart her machine. Of course, this saddened me. I haven't a clue how to respond to a computer screen that tells me the server cannot be located, which may be my age. But thinking machines have mothers is not age-related. 61 years of marriage to a computer programmer gave me a reason to suspect the belief that machines have mothers isn't related to dementia either. But I could be wrong. The further down the dementia road you go with your loved one, the harder it is to see what's behind you if you ever dare turn around. At the same time, one thing that has annoyed me for almost 95 years why are women's stories so unrelentingly sad? Arrow and I decided about the time I moved in that we were going to find humor everywhere we possibly could. This was more of a struggle for her than she anticipated. And it frustrates me still that this 
struggle is how I took to measuring her proximity to herself through the process. It wasn't just the damage one can do to someone, to an entire group, to use struggle as a focal point for identity. It was that struggle was a poor proxy for it. I shuffled with Arrow through downtown LaConnor, Washington, still as quaint as it was when it was established in 1869, on one of our dusk walks. She pointed at a carved toy train in the window display of the woodworking shop and shouted, Stretch Rumble! Her glee was that of a child. It was the glee she had as a child. She instantly heated up with shame and stuffed her hands back into her pockets. I had to suppress my delight at seeing young Arrow again and say, smoothly as I could, we don't really leave behind all the selves we once were. It's more that we collect them along the way. Oh, Mom, Arrow said, you and your antique collecting. An intentional joke. A purposeful tease. Be still, my heart. Uh, Please excuse me again. It's time for Arrow's medicines. Be still, my hands. I awake in the night to irregular thudding, striving for pattern. The grunt of a table against the original hardwood in the dining room. The front door latching and unlatching. The reek of burning coffee. Fingernails clacking on the wood paneling. Did I forget Arrow's medicines? Arrow and I talked about the dreams for the house we share now. Though it felt like planting seeds after you've received word to evacuate for two women past 75 to discuss dreaming, it also felt gloriously transgressive. I poured tea from my mother's ceramic pot, which Arrow played make-believe with her whole childhood and never broke. I wanted wisteria. I wanted it to graze our grayed heads as we came and went. She wanted a bright orange trellis to hang the wisteria on. I wanted a door frame in which I could put a notch where the top of her head reached every time she asked to be measured. She wanted some humongous sectional that got stuck in her mind during a commercial break, I'm guessing, but the way she's describing it, I can't imagine it fitting in our great room. She insists it will. I don't want to fragilize her. Not yet. So I insist the opposite. She keeps talking about monuments, and it takes me far too long to realize that she means measurements. Because by the time I think to look for, what is it called, Gumby's ruler is the only thing that comes to mind, she is sobbing her head off. I've forgotten what I'm looking for. I've forgotten how I used to soothe my child. All I can think is, Arrow needs her medicines. I don't know how many hours later, Arrow is poking at the computer screen like she did with fish bowls 70 years ago. It is actually time for Arrow's medicines, I believe, but she will not take them. This is the first time she will not take them. She will not take them until after we find the server. All I can find are the words I was looking for earlier. Tape measure. I'm afraid to write short stories <laughs> because you've got to <laughs> you've got to pack so much. <laughs> yeah, you've got to pack a lot of stuff in the story. So, are there any specific literary techniques 
or devices that you enjoy using, maybe, I don't know, symbolism, sensory detail, imagery, whatever. What do you enjoy using as a literary technique? Yes. One of the things I, I actually really, I didn't do this on purpose, but when I realized I was doing it, I started doing it intentionally is okay. um, repetition. So um, when you repeat something throughout a story, you're layering it with different kinds of meaning. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a specific phrase. It can be a concept um, or an image uh, and it changes every time it's repeated. So it's technically not just straight repetition. Um, but I like to use that because it's one of those things that um, I think we all sort of experience in life where um, we have these, like kind of like history repeats itself. We have that in the macro and I think in the micro. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, this thing again. Oh, this thing again. And instead of because I used to be really frustrated by that. We're like, oh, haven't I learned this lesson yet? Or why is this happening mm-hmm. again? But kind of yes. layer, experiencing it as layering in meaning in life. Um, writing fiction actually is what taught me to do that with uh, certain patterns in my life that maybe I'm struggling to break or that really like, um, but just kind of going, okay, well, what, what new meaning does this have now that it's um, coming to the surface again? So repetition, definitely. And then I would also say, um, yes, imagery and the symbolism that that you can imbue imagery with. Um, Mm -hmm. So like in the the story I just read, Server Not Found, that's something that um, I find to be like infuriating when my computer tells me that. Yes. Um, Like, what do I do with that? I have no idea. I, uh, I know nothing about computers when it comes to troubleshooting them and so but it was like well instead of just being frustrated because this happens a lot that the server not found image comes up that that comes up all the time for me I don't know maybe I'm just using computers incorrectly but um seems to come up a lot for me so instead of being like oh yeah here's this repeated thing that's very annoying like well what can I turn that into that makes it less (laughs) frustrating um so I guess in that way, imagery and repetition uh, kind of go together for me. Um, and I would also say, this is not exactly a literary element, but kind of the element of mm-hmm. surprise. I don't know who first said this, but there's this quote that goes, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the reasons why my first draft novels, short stories, whatever, mm-hmm. aren't outlined at all. Um, okay. And I, I have very much surprised myself when I've done, uh, every time I've written anything. So uh, it doesn't mean that that's exactly how it stays. I think I kind of, novels are a little bit of a different story. And short stories don't necessarily require outlines, but they sometimes require a lot of rewriting. But I will always mm-hmm. go to what is the image or word or idea or concept that I'm repeating, even like not consciously. And that is what the story is about to me. Um, mm-hmm. If it comes out in a way that I haven't intended. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's also this, this is more of a, maybe more of a process question than a device question, but I, I do think about windows for the reader. 
Um, I okay. don't cater, I don't cater to readers um, because I do. Sometimes I put words in my stories that require a dictionary, but I respect my readers enough to be like, you guys are smart people, and I trust that you will uh, either fill in the meaning of this word or um, you will look it up. So I don't, I don't talk down my readers, but I will say that when I'm writing, I'm always thinking about not locking the reader out. And okay. okay. Trying I like to be, that. You know, it can be very – the first couple of stories, stories I ever tried to write – were they were just too opaque. They were like there's a difference between mystery and just like confusion. And I was uh on the confusion side of that of that line. And I was like, this is not inviting to a reader. So what can I use to invite a reader into a story without spoon feeding them? And I think repetition without explaining what the repetition is is one way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then mm-hmm. having very, very strong images that people can actually envision okay. when they read the words. That really grounds people. Mm-hmm. So in terms of your target audience, are you hoping to reach a wide range of readers or a particular population? Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> the, the audience question. Um I I think when I first started writing, I didn't really know how to define an audience or how to even reach people at all. Um, so I wrote what younger versions of myself needed to read. And okay. I've actually come up, since come across uh, advice that your, your reader avatar, like your, you know, your best or your ideal reader is actually mm-hmm. uh, a younger version of yourself. Um, and that's not because you're the most important person in the world or anything, but just because you know that person best. And I think mm-hmm. that, well, I would love to say that, um, oh yeah, my writing is accessible to anyone. I would love everyone to read my writing. I know that that it's not, that's not possible and mm-hmm. one of the other things, this is another quote, I don't know where it came from, but um, the more particular, the more universal. So uh, I used to be really afraid of including details in my story because I didn't want to mm-hmm. alienate people. But now I include as many concrete details as possible because the person will fill in whatever I, the reader will fill in whatever I don't include with their own details. So I would say the, if I have a target reader or target audience, it would be people who are uh, probably more, more introspective, more interested in contemplating Things like human nature, decision making, how do people become who they are, and the complexities of the world. Um, they're not, we, I don't write escapist fiction. That's actually, that's a genre, is escapist fiction. Okay. Um, and it's fine. People read to escape all the time, and that's totally great. I do that. Um, but I don't write that way. 
uh, because I want mm-hmm. deep like immersion. So people who want to get immersed in the realities of this world, as, as I understand them, I'm not going to claim to be an expert on <laughs> metaphysical realities of uh, the world, yes. but to have a, an immersive experience in, in, in a, a reality, a perspective that may not be familiar to them and that they really want to think about people like you want to, people say they have to read my poems two or three times. I think, I suspect that would also be true of my stories. Um, so yeah, people who are wanting to spend more time with a piece of writing and wanting to engage and think. Um, and uh, it's, which is hard to do. It's hard to sit with some of these things. Mm-hmm. Like I told a story about yes, it is. You know, a, a, a shooting like that's because that's the reality of, of American life. Yes. Um, and, it is. Uh, it is. and all Alzheimer's and childhood cancer and, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and things like that. And it's not because I want to dwell on the horrors of the world. Um, because the, the, the point of the story server not found is that the, that one was, mostly purely fiction I, I actually well I have since met someone who's caring for a child with Alzheimer's but before I met them I wrote the story and it was like what do people do to get through a challenging time that that for most cases won't get better um, yes what do people do and so humor I think it's very hard to write funny pieces um, Mm-hmm. Uh, I, find, I find humor in writing to be extremely difficult. So that and, and to be genuine. I mean, humor is such a mysterious thing. But I think mm-hmm. the people, the people who are, I will say, the people who find me and who are drawn to me are people who mm-hmm. really want to think, really want to wrestle with truly difficult questions, um, and who who go to reading more for engagement and like the marrow of life rather than, okay, gosh, I need a break. I had a really hard day. Neither one is, is yes. better than the other. Um, but that's who I've kind of been finding has found me. Wow. You know, we've almost reached the end of our short story yes. journal, <laughs> but I'd like you to share one more before we go. Okay. Share one more. I I can't wait. I mean, now that I'm settled in and <laughs> feeling comfortable as I listen, just please share one more. Thank you. <laughs> okay. One more. This is called Ghost List. Let there be a city that is growing faster than any other city in the United States. As much people now as rainfall. Let there be jobs or rumors of jobs to call people here. Let the fault lines between humans, mimicking those that twitch beneath, remain concealed for just a bit longer. Let appear, as it was in 2007-2008, luxurious stacks of condos, that reach far into the sky so that even more people who don't talk to each other can fit into this donation. Let these condos be in place of housing units once upon a time the masses could access. 
Let there be a hidden sense of home, which only reveals itself if you leave, that existed long before the waves of conversion began. Let all the people who matter, many probably won't stay long, gobble and gobble and say amen and let the rest eat cake. Let there be a tent under the overpass closest to the downtown of the lonely, affordable city. I-5 isn't so loud anymore with everyone new clogging it up. And let there be an embarrassment of riches of people encamped there who could show me how they learned to sleep through cold and ungiving ground, how to keep walking after your ass is finally kicked to the curb by the one you always knew deserved better. I also always knew that that kind of thinking was exactly why you deserved better. Let there be familiarity with services, mostly overrun, it turns out, and emergency rooms. The need for familiarity of the kind I have. I am a native Seattleite, and the freeze is not what you think. Neither is alcoholism, and neither is the rain. Let alcoholism not be what you or I think. If you're me, let marriage not be what you think. Let there be light. Amen. Let there be people who pass me without looking while I hold out my cup. I need help, but I don't want to be seen, which is another way I am like God. Let, the be, let there be services that are overrun like green on city, then. Let there be emergency rooms with no room like homes in city. People who want you to come to them are taking the easy way out. Let there be fewer services than demand for services. Let there be a way I could save others so that when I die, freeze to death in the rare snow that is very pretty, and fun, and gives everyone the breaks they have been needing, most likely. Something will have gotten better. Let it not be, let it not take a breaking for any further humans to take a break. Let the bottles stay in one piece. Let them stay on shelves. If not, let the corrosion I cannot feel anymore be good for something more than a penance. A symbol of how the hurt I put in my family's heart will go away. A model for the plan, beautiful band of human beings, a hope and a future, amen? But maybe let there not be a future for me. Let there not be any more time for me to fill with deceit and rum and failure and rum and misery and rum. Let this quest for power, the freedom from feelings and consequences, come to a clean end. Let it be that you never taste this sweet, fiery freedom. Let there be more for me. Amen. Because then there is relief. Deceit? So be it. If there is finally rest, finally warmth, finally safety. The philosophers say you only reach your full potential outside your comfort zone. Let them shut up. Let the only people who have lost everything as a victim of themselves make the philosophy. Let there not be philosophy. Let there be only living. 
And then let there be the sweet, fiery mercy of ending where all the people say, Amen. Wow. <laughs> Megan, what have you learned about yourself through writing short stories? What have you learned about you? Hmm. That's a great question. Uh, the most important thing I've learned is that I really care about people and especially people who nobody else cares about. Um, Mm. The story that I just read is about um, someone who's experiencing homelessness and alcoholism. And that could be any number of people in this city, but um, I Uh, I am kept up at night by the fact that that's happening in my city. And Mm. it's my chosen city. Um, This story was not, I wrote it in uh, an I form, but that's the beauty of fiction is you, that's how you get empathy. You can Mm -hmm. put yourself in, um, in an, in a narrator that you are not. Um, I I don't have experience with homelessness, praise the Lord, or alcoholism. Um, But, and I'm not a native Seattleite, but I've lived here long enough to watch, um, terrible things happen in this city and and I really I care and the other thing is I I really want other people to care I really want us to care about each other um even if even if we don't have anything to give each other um it's not it's not just oh the the you know the poor person living in a tent under the under overpass of I-5 doesn't have anything to give me like I don't know that I have anything to give that person either except for my time and attention and that is worth more than money at this point so I just I I care about people I want us to care about each other and I want people to see things that are easier to ignore Um, and I just like, I don't mean to put myself up on this pedestal because it's so easy to ignore things that we can't do anything about. And Very much so. I agree. And I, yeah, and I, 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 I do it. I still do it. <laughs> um, uh, mm-hmm. And I, I think that's another thing I've learned about myself is like, oh, it's so easy to hide behind, uh, you know, oh, okay, I'm going to go write this short story to tell this person that I just passed on the street that I see them. But did I go tell mm-hmm. the person that? Are they ever going to read this short mm-hmm. story? Um, are they ever going to know that I saw them? So mm-hmm. while it's like, oh, yeah, I really do care about people, uh, the, another thing I've learned about myself is, man, it's much easier. I, I do choose hiding and disengagement um, a lot more often yes. than I would like to tell myself that I do um, mm-hmm. or that I would exhort my readers to also. So there's the... The, the person who cares in there, there's the hypocrite in there, um, there's the, mm-hmm. the, the fearful child in there um, who mm-hmm. would rather uh, just, you know, sit around and, and read books under the covers. Um, but it's all, it's all fodder for good writing. <laughs> you know, if you're willing, I'd like you to come back in December for part two. Oh, I would and love that. <laughs> <laughs> you can read longer stories. 
There'll be no questions from me. I'll turn oh. the program over to you. And I just want to hear more of your work. You're a phenomenal oh writer. Because there's a oh. unique power in a well-crafted short story. Mm-hmm. Someone who, who's not afraid to pack that stuff in it. And you do that. Mm. Thank you. you I would so love to. I would love to come back and share yes. more. Yes. Yeah, I'm serious. We'll schedule something, it. but uh, I just, yes. <laughs> part two, part two. All right. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, then. <laughs> well, before we get to part two, what's next for you creatively, my friend? Where do you go from here? Uh, the main focus I have is um, finishing up this uh third uh, novel manuscript that started out as a short story. Then mm-hmm. I tried to combine two short stories. And then when I tried to edit it down, I ended up adding 12,000 words and I realized it was a novel. So, um, <laughs> so that happened. And so that's, I'm trying to wrangle this thing. It's uh, again, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. This whole thing was a complete surprise. Um, mm-hmm. one of the, one of the short stories that was based on actually has been published. And so, um, I'll, I can read that one too, cause it turned out, um, that that was a really good seed for this novel. So really the goal is get this, this draft finished by the end of the year. It's taken me far too long to figure out that this is a novel. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. and then I have the, um, the third poetry collection to finish editing, um, probably won't happen by the end of the year, but uh, cause I'm working with my writer's group to do that. And then I just have like a list of probably 15 or so short stories um, that, <laughs> that I think are probably going to be a collection because there's going to be one, mm-hmm. a couple of, I, I'm, I pulled out a couple of scenes that I want to uh, write about in these short stories. So it would mm-hmm. be my first uh, short story collection. So, um, mm-hmm. and then I have, two or three nonfiction pieces I, I want to do research for um, and then uh, submit to, to various uh, magazines and journals that um, I have loved reading. I have loved um, being a, a member of the, the, those audiences and want to contribute uh, again to them or contribute for the first time. So uh, I have no idea when I'm going to get all of this done, but that's, the, the priority is the, uh, the, the cover. I've got sci-fi, cli-fi, middle grade novel thing that's happening is the priority. <laughs> well, hopefully you're taking time for you in yeah. terms of yeah. rest and or <laughs> sleep or <laughs> right. all the right. holistic things, the <laughs> healthy things that can keep you, keep you going. Totally. Yes, the only way I get myself Make to rest up. is by knowing that it's, um, this is serving my writing. Otherwise, it would be so hard for me to rest. <laughs> well, I just want to say I'm so glad that you shared your gift tonight. It makes me happy. It makes me happy oh. to be in your company again. So we'll schedule something for December. 
So everyone out there, <laughs> prepare yourself for part two. Oh, my gosh. Yes. So excited. I look forward to this Bring, since we scheduled it. I'm so excited to come on know. again. This is amazing. Bring, bring some popcorn. <laughs> We're going to go on a roller coaster and maybe something to drink Absolutely. to Absolutely. But <laughs> we're gonna be on a roller coaster. All right. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I need a cold bath of water. All right. <laughs> and I'm the host. <laughs> All right, everybody. <laughs> As I share with you every time we together, let poetry and short stories live throughout the land. Take care. Good night, Megan. Good night. Thank you so much. (laughs) Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com.